HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made it a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, longtime friend of the Tunes, Maxwell Britton returns to chat about his new role as chairman of the Hospitality Industry Reimagined Society Trust, or THIRST. Formed early on during the pandemic lockdown, the group is a national advocacy group with hyperlocal chapters that is focusing on getting insurance companies to honor small business claims for companies affected by the shutdown. We talk about the hurdles they're looking to overcome and how you, the listener, can get involved. Later on, we dip into our archives for a chat and live performance from the Vibe's favorite, 88 Palms. And if you've not gotten your copy yet, our new book, Snacky Tunes, Music is the Main Ingredient, is out internationally now on Faden and arriving in the U.S. and Australia on October 14th. Head to Faden.com or wherever you prefer to buy books. Thank you for tuning in. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky.
and welcome to Snappy Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Brevnitz. On the phone with me today is an old friend of the tune, I think one of our earliest guests, Maxwell Britton. Welcome back to Snappy Tunes. It's awesome to be back. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah. So I know that you are wearing many, many hats these days, and we'll touch on a couple of them, but the reason why you're on here is because you recently accepted the role of chairman of the Hospitality Industry Reimagined Security Trust or Thirst. You're already the New York State organizer. Uh, for those who are uninitiated, what is Thirst? Uh, well, Thirst is a uh, 501c6, which makes us a not-for-profit lobby group, a national lobby group. And uh, we are made up of hospitality leaders, lawyers, insurance experts, and uh, we are fighting for um, responsible COVID regulation and with a specific focus on uh, amending a lot of the bills for business interruption insurance for small business. And we'll get to that in a second, but how was Thirst founded? Uh, so it was actually founded by a guy named Nate Whitehouse, and uh, he is a partner in a really great craft uh, cachaça company called Avoa Cachaça. And he's also a partner with an international uh, distribution company called Drifter Spirits. Um, he's actually a trade, uh, a lawyer by trade, um, before he's a, uh, sort of a beverage, beverage, uh, entrepreneur. Um, and so he actually started doing kind of like a town hall, um, that was just sort of made up of like invite only hospitality leaders from across the country to discuss, you know, a lot of the, the issues that we're facing in the hospitality industry. And so it just sort of started out as like a collaborative discussion about, you know, where are the problems and what can we do to support this? And with the thing, the main thing that we identified, um, and this is because most of us are small business owners that were on this call, we were all talking about how none of us were able to get an approval for our business interruption insurance. And we started looking at it deeper and kind of realized that pretty much less than 1% of anybody that was filing for a business interruption uh, approval from their insurance carriers were getting denied. And we were like, oh, my God, this is really crazy because, you know, this industry is sitting on around like $847 billion in reserves. And, you know, we all spend millions and millions of dollars every year to pay for this product that's supposed to be there for us to protect us in case we're forced into some kind of closure. And uh, essentially, it's just getting denied across the board. And so since we had some lawyers that were a part of the team, uh, we just started looking deeper into it and realized this is a problem everywhere. And so we began forming a group uh, to build out an infrastructure so we could strategize how to change legislation. So, yes, there are some lawyers that are a part of it, but essentially you have just a whole bunch of hospitality professionals becoming, uh, you know, policy advocates and uh, community activists. So we're all kind of just like pivoting and doing something none of us have ever done before. When was his first town hall, just to give frame of reference? Uh, we first started it, I think, like early April. It wasn't very, it wasn't very much after the, you know, the um, quarantine started in New York when, when we first started doing this. But we, we formed as like an official entity, I would say, in May. 
And, uh, you know, now we're in late August and uh, we've formed about 20 charters. So we, we are in 20 states across the country and we're working towards uh, 50. And, and to set the stage for everybody else, pre-COVID, I mean, there were thousands of small business owners, specifically in the cocktail bar scene. What was the type of association? You know, uh, was it just friendly sharing of different recipes or staging? Was there any type of advocacy groups that you knew of? Uh, I mean, there always has been. You know, there's a lot of, like, like sort of community-based groups around uh, the hospitality industry. There always has been. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind immediately, the, uh, the United States Bartenders Guild, um, so, you know, like I'm a bar guy, and so a lot of the communities that I'm really familiar with are, are definitely bartender and cocktail-focused industry communities. Um, so, yeah, the USBG is one of them. And then, you know, like there's, always, there's also these, like, national and international uh, cocktail festivals, like Tales of the Cocktail and, um, like, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bar Convent, Portland Cocktail Week. Um, so there's all these, like, sort of trade-focused um, institutions that have been around for a long time that have had a lot of communities that sort of build around, um, you know, people that work in the bar business. Um, so I've always been really involved, uh, to that on that level. Um, and when you're in those communities, they're very, very supportive and very educational and, um, people are very open and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great, a great community to be a part of. And so, you know, what we're all really doing right now is sort of just like activating all of these networks and shifting our focus from, you know, uh, educating each other on stuff like abstract absence and, uh, you know, forgotten cocktail recipes to, um, (laughs) you know, public policy. (laughs) Same same esoteric knowledge, just uh, a different source. And yes, exactly. For those, for those who don't understand why the policy changes, I think it's helpful to talk about SARS and what insurance is covered pre-SARS and post-SARS. For those who remember, SARS was the respiratory um, illness that came um, uh, out of China that was kind of a pre-COVID but much more contained um, pandemic. So what, was the, what were the changes that the uh, insurance uh, industry made to their policy? that most people didn't understand or realize. Yeah, so that this is definitely like the sticking point of of the insurance companies and also our advocacy group's uh, argument. And so it's based on a clause that uh, most insurance carriers um, have included in their policies, which is the no pandemic or no virus clause. So basically business interruption gets triggered in a few different ways. Um, a lot of the time they're filed due to physical damages. So things like a flood or a fire, these would be the kinds of things that could happen to your business that would um, possibly force you into closure, which would therefore lead to a loss of revenue. And that's why you have your business interruption insurance. So that way, if, uh, if you are forced into a closure, it's there for you. Uh, but there's a couple other uh, ways that it can be triggered. And um, there's uh, what's called civil action or civil commotion. So basically, that means that if there's a government body that um, forces you into a closure, um, such as like what we're experiencing specifically uh, in New York City, and of course, there's a lot of versions of varying degrees across the country of of what we're experiencing here, 
where there's partial openings, you know, like you're operating at 25, 50% occupancy indoors, or maybe there's only outdoor seating. There's other cities that, you know, aren't allowing uh, like the to-go cocktail, to-go spirits thing that's happening um, here in New York. But uh, yeah, to get back to the whole SARS question and how that relates to how these different ways business interruption insurance can be triggered, the no pandemic clause basically says that um, it just doesn't, business interruption insurance doesn't cover pandemics and it doesn't cover uh, viruses and things like that. Um, but our argument, we're standing on, we're standing on the, we're standing on the soapbox that says, well, this is not about a virus. We're talking about civil action. We're talking about civil, uh, civil commotion where we're being forced into a loss of revenue by the government, not by the virus. The virus might make some co- cause some other kind of effect, but we wouldn't know what that is because we're not, we're not operating at full capacity. So really with the arguments from the lawyer side is that it, the pandemic is not the reason why you're losing revenue. It's because of government shutdown. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And when businesses started realizing that they weren't getting paid, I'm sure it felt isolated, but what was the groundswell when you realized that this was much more of a trend and a policy and less about one or two random cases? I mean, it was just kind of coming up everywhere, and it almost became a joke to a lot of a lot of business owners, um, you know, because it's just like, yeah, there's nothing we can do about it. We're getting steamrolled by the by the insurance companies, so we just have to move on and see if we can apply for these government programs, the PPP, the CARES Act, things like that, um, which is understandable because we're backed up into a corner. So we're, we're always going to be thinking of, okay, well, then what's the next thing that I can do? Um, but quite a lot of people have like not even bothered dealing with it because they just know that it, there's, there's no chance that they're going to be able to get their, their uh, insurance policy fulfilled. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that we've – some people, a lot of businesses, especially bars and restaurants, I mean, to, to be clear, you know, we are made up of hospitality leaders, and we do have a focus on restaurants and bars, but this is something that will help all small businesses. So we're not necessarily exclusionary about it, but it just kind of happens to be the spirit of, you know, uh, where we're coming from. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been very interesting to, to hear people's different stories um, and their experiences with their insurance policies, but they all tend to kind of be the same. But uh, kind of what I was try, trying to say just before was, you know, a lot of a lot of people who work in restaurants and bars or own own restaurants and bars, they have to have they have to have business interruption insurance. And a lot of a lot of other small businesses may not necessarily need to have it. But if you're dealing with a liquor license, you're dealing with alcohol, you're dealing with liabilities that are not the same as what you would be dealing with if, you know, you ran a daycare or a hardware store or something like that. There's different liabilities, of course, but uh, you really, you really have to pay uh, up the ass for restaurant. And so we all deal with insurers and insurance brokers all the time. And we know the game that they play. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so frustrating how much money we all have to put into it. And it's sort of like, what are we, what are we even paying for if we're not getting anything out of it? And it's really, you know, a lot of the time it's because you have a liquor license and, and you can't have one without insurance. Were there any insurance brokers or were there any stories of people who were soothsayers about this, who called, called out right after SARS that this clause was being removed? Um, was there any 
but he pointing towards this as an issue or was it relatively unnoticed? I think it was pretty unnoticed. And I think also many of us that have benefited from the, the success of the culinary and hospitality and travel industry um, in the United States over the last 20 years, um, you know, we've had it pretty good. I mean, even in the 2008 recession that we experienced, there was a lot of people out of work and there was a lot of the economy was in a really bad place, but restaurants and bars survived um, and they thrived because people always need to be comforted. They always need to eat. They always need to have a cocktail Whether you could be having a cocktail because you're down or you could be having a drink because you're up, you know, um, it serves multiple purposes. And, you know, these, these places are key centers for a lot of people. It's where they go to be comforted. And we've always thought that we had like kind of an indestructible business. And uh, I don't think anybody was really thinking about there ever being a pandemic. Um, and if there was, I don't think anybody thought that restaurants and bars would be so specifically targeted, but that's the situation. And now we're, now we're seeing a $1 trillion a year business just getting torn down every single day. And just for, you touched on this already, but what you said was that insurance companies were sitting on about $847 billion in reserves, and the yes. total cost to pay this out is $380 billion. Is there any yeah, reason be, that yeah. you've gotten? Go on. No, no, please finish. Okay, is there any reason that you've got now that, uh, I'm sure when it was just individuals, they were just, sorry, we don't pay it, but now that there is a organized lobbying group and much more of a groundswell. What is the response that you're getting from the insurance agencies and, and what has been some of the reaction to your early attempts at policy change? Um, well, you know, it's, it's been, it's been very interesting because first off you have to figure out, you have to know how to do it. <laughs> and so we, in the beginning, just building out our strategy and building out our structure, has been a, a big focus and, you know, establishing our charters across the United States. Um, and uh, on our steering committee, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, we are made up of hospitality leaders and lawyers and insurance experts and things like that. So we have people that, you know, have worked closely with insurers on the legal side of things. Um, so we have some, some really uh, high level advisors um, that have been a part of helping us build this strategy um, and also uh, focus on a lot of the cases that are kind of in some of the judiciary courts right now. Um, so we're, we're kind of able to use a lot of these case studies as examples when we um, go and sit down with legislators to talk about it. Um, but this is where I would have to tell you a lot about our strategy. So if you're okay with that, I'll just break, I can break it all down for you. Absolutely. That'd be great. Okay, cool. So every state in, in the country has a, an insurance committee that's made up of uh, state senators and assembly members. And uh, they all reside in different districts throughout any given state. And uh, so what we've done, so we have our legal team, we also have uh, law students as well that have helped us map out every single one of these districts throughout the country. And so... Then at that point, what we do is we've identified the districts and uh, we know, you know where they're located and you know, where their zones are, and um, that's where we canvas. So 
we're canvassing to small businesses that are within a district that's presided over by a um, by a legislator. And uh, we're basically trying, we're petitioning small businesses to simply just provide us with their um, business contact information. Um, we also allow them to provide us with like just a brief testimony of like whatever economic hardships they might be uh, enduring over this period of time. Uh, and what we try to do is get a minimum of 50 to 100 signatures of small businesses within a district. Uh, once we've achieved that quota, um, what we'll do, oh, I've, I've left out one part. Uh, we, we have a, a person who, who we call a community organizer um, that's working at the district level. So that person is specifically appointed to one district. And ideally, it's somebody who is also a small business owner. So somebody that's of the community and knows the area, and, you know, somebody that, you know, is hopefully impressionable um, to others. And so after we've reached that quota, we'll schedule a meeting with the representative's office and they're required uh, to take that meeting with us. And um, they would probably be met with, uh, with one of our legal uh, experts as well as myself and uh, the community organizer. And we would sit down with, the, with that person and let them know about you know, what kind of experiences the small businesses in the districts that they focus on are experiencing during this time. And you know, we'll let them know what some of the challenges are as far as the policies go. And then we also provide them with a few different solutions in terms of how we think that we might be able to change it. Because really what the problem is, it's not necessarily that there's um, a pandemic clause in, in a lot of these policies. It's actually a little bit more about the, uh, the legislation that interprets those policies. Um, so the people that sit on this committee, they're the people that essentially interpret uh, what these bills really mean. Um, so we're trying to appeal to these officials by letting them know, look, this is your community. These are the businesses that, uh, that are here. You know, you're responsible for like the economic well-being of this area and as well as the public safety of this community. And so we're showing you that there's a hundred signatures here and they're all asking for your help. And, um, you know, if, if, if they're not, if they're not, uh, influenced by all of that, then, you know, we also have our community organizer who's at the table and they can say, Hey, you know, like I, I'm one of your, I'm one of your constituents. I'm within your district. I'm a small business owner. There's a hundred small business owners here that, that are asking for your help. So if what you're saying is, uh, you know, you, you don't support an amendment to this bill, I'm totally happy to let everybody know in the business community, how you feel about it. And we'll be sure to let everybody know not to vote for you. So you kind of have a little bit of a, uh, a, a court of public opinion pressure strategy that we apply at that point. But, you know, hopefully, you know, we don't have to, to get to that level with anybody. But, you know, we're, we're suffering in a very big way. So we'll, we'll, we'll apply whatever strategy we have to in order to get these policymakers on our side. We're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play a song from our archives, and then we'll be back with Maxwell Britton from Thirst here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Don't this before I'll do 
You mentioned that you're in 20 different states. Uh, have you had meetings yet with legislators uh, and have you seen any successes or has it mostly been still organizing and just starting to get to the table? Yeah, we're definitely still in the organizing phase right now um, to varying degrees. And we also still have, even though we're established as charters in a lot of states, we still have you know a lot of unassigned uh, districts for community organizers. Um, so, a lot of focus has been built on just sort of like galvanizing the hospitality industry to um, try to get them to, to contribute, you know, some of their time and some of their efforts um, on these things. But we have had we have had a few uh, a, a few meetings with with um, some people and local government and state government in some places. In New York, we've had a couple. Uh, we're actually in the midst of. Uh, having our first meeting with uh, the district representative for downtown Manhattan um, pretty soon, so we're we're excited about that, and so we're we're definitely beginning to garner um, some sponsors from the government that uh, that will support us. And, um, we have a chapter in Washington D.C., and um, they've made some really enormous strides over there. And even though we're not working on the federal level. Um, they've been able to establish a lot of support and a lot of really great contacts from, from local government. And then, of course, there's also tons of, of these like hospitality-based advocacy coalitions that have um, popped up all over the place. And uh, so it's also really important that, that we maintain communications with them and you know, build out a relationship with those people so that we can really support each other and ensure that you know, we're we're kind of staying in our lanes and, and focus on the issues that we say that we're focused on, um, which has also led to, you know, uh, having some really good contacts. For me, it's been, you know, talking to some people in city council, uh, the Chamber of Commerce. I've also been in touch with uh, the mayor's office of nightlife. And, um, you know, we're, we're really just kind of reporting to them where, where we're going and, and where we stand and, um, you know, as we continue to grow and build our credibility, then we'll be able to have more and more people sign on with us. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely making a lot of great progress. We've been able to to get a lot of excellent uh, supporters on the government side of things so far, but we haven't had quite as many meetings with legislators just yet. And that's mostly just because we really need to make sure that we have uh, as many small businesses as we can um, signed up as members with our organization. For an independent business owner who is listening right now and wants to join, what are the steps of outreach and, and getting themselves involved? Um, there's a couple. And if, uh, if you want to get in touch with me directly, I am the chairman of the organization, but I'm also the state organizer for New York. Um, so that means that if you're in New York, uh, you can contact me directly and I can help you out. Or if you're in another state, Maybe you're in a state where there hasn't been a charter established just yet and you'd like to start one. I can also help you with that. Um, and my email address is M as in Maxwell, B as in Britain at maxwellbritain.com. Um, if you feel more comfortable um, going to our website, that's also an option. So our website is thirstgroup.org. And um, there's a sign-up page over there. And that would be an enormous help to us. And so if you're not sure if you can uh, make the commitment of dedicating two hours every week to us, just 
taking 25 seconds to go to our website and provide us with your uh, contact information and your business information, we would uh, really, really appreciate that. And uh, we also act as a resource as well, and that's a really important thing that I've left out. Um, so what we're trying to do, this is a extremely ambitious uh, endeavor, to put it mildly. And um, in the short term, while we're you know building out our our infrastructure, building out our signatures and our our chapters, et cetera, um, as I've mentioned, we have a really great legal team. We have insurance experts, so we're also able to act as a resource. Because um, the really big thing is, even if people feel like they know they're not going to get their insurance policy approved, they should still file a claim, and that's a really important part to um, the case that we're building right now. Um, so we can act as a resource to help you file your claim. And if you're looking for any further counsel, um, we can also connect you with some of the top uh, legal teams in the country for uh, business interruption insurance. Assuming that this gets sorted uh, in the short to medium term, in the long term for Thirst, I think it's really interesting that you have the words reimagined and security as part of your title. Uh, you've been in the industry for a long time. You've won some of the top accolades. I'm sure you've seen the best and the worst it has to offer. Um, what do you think when all of this is rebuilt? What stays in, and what do you hope stays away? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I'm not sure if, uh, if I can provide you with a full answer, but, you know, I think, it's just interesting because there's still, I think there's, there's a lot of states where there's still a great deal of just, just starting with financial inequities um, in, a lot of, in a lot of restaurants and bars, and that's been a topic for a long time. Because you, we're looking at everything from uh, hourly tip-waged workers who you know, are making $5 an hour to um, you know, the line cooks that are you know, sweating in kitchens for 13 hours a day making, you know, $11 an hour. Um, and so, you know, I think the state of New York has actually done a pretty good job of addressing some of those things. Um, so we have a, uh, a guaranteed minimum wage in, in New York for hospitality workers that work in the front of house. So um, everybody's guaranteed $10 an hour. And um, since they're making tips, if uh, they don't make a minimum of $15 an hour combined with their $10 an hour base, then um, the business is responsible for uh, making them whole so that they're meeting that, that minimum wage. Um, so, you know, we have a few good things going on there, but, you know, there's still a lot of inequities in terms of, like, what people are getting back of house. There's the ongoing argument about, you know, should, should tipping be abolished? And, you know, I got to say, I'm a bartender at heart. That's where I started. And um, I've, always, I've always believed that tips are a very important part of, of, the American, of the American hospitality experience. And a lot of people would disagree with that. But um, there are also a lot of people that don't. And I think that if you ask most bartenders, they would probably say they would not want to work um, in a restaurant or bar where they couldn't make tips. Um, but there are other inequities that aren't, that aren't money. And I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, it's kind of paired with, you know, the underbelly of a lot of these uh, racial injustices that we're experiencing in this group now. And, uh, you know, you see that, you can see some of these things in a lot of, in a lot of, you know, great cocktail bars and fine dining restaurants where, 
you know, there's not a lot of diversity. You know, there, there can be a lot of places where there's not, you know, people of color and there's not maybe a lot of females working. And so I think that we're, I think that, you know, this is not quite as much part of, you know, what, what I'm currently doing, but, you know, the, all of these things are happening at the same time. And, you know, a lot of the ugly parts of the industry um, are kind of showing their, their faces to us right now. And um, it's impossible to, to look away. And we have to come to terms with that and create opportunities where there's more uh, equality in the workplace, especially amongst people of color and, and females as well. So I'm hoping, that, uh, I'm hoping to see that as a recognition that um, is a change for good for um, restaurants and uh, bars of the future. As we mentioned at the top of the show, you're a man of many talents and wearer of many hats. Uh, you oversee Django in the basement of the Roxy Hotel, which has one mm-hmm. of the best jazz programs in the city. Uh, how have you adjusted to coronavirus performances and supporting the artists that play your space? Yeah. Um, so I have spent a lot of time recently thinking about that. Um, cause up until, you know, up until I guess mid by, I've been really, really focused on helping every small business and, and being very business focused. Um, or, you know, I started thinking a lot about, uh, about all the musicians that I've employed for the, the past, uh, four years. And, um, these are really great people. These are really talented artists and they represent, you know, the arts and the culture of New York city. And, um, you know, while everyone's talking about like so worried about businesses and of course they represent jobs, you know, there are artists out there that have, that are really, really stuck. And I think that especially music venues are taking an even harder hit than a lot of, a lot of restaurants and bars and hotels. Um, cause they tend to be, you know, sometimes larger spaces, there's a lot of music, which means people talking loudly. Um, music can cause people to dance, um, people getting close to each other. Um, so we kind of have like a national footloose uh, martial law on us. And um, I've just been trying to think through different ways that I can support all of the people, the artists that have really supported me over the years. And um, so I sort of started a, a, a musician's fund and uh, I'm just trying to raise money for, for the guys that, that have uh, really supported me over the years and then uh, I developed an idea where we would um, really put them back to work um, by raising a little bit of money and uh, basically recording virtual shows um, where, you know, I can actually pay these guys like, you know, actual performance fees and uh, they get to do what they love, which is play music. And I get to do what I love, um, which is, you know, giving people a job and of course also um, giving, you know, the audience, the consumers that are at home, uh, music and, and culture back into their living rooms since they can actually do it in person. Amazing. And where are people able to watch this or how are they able to participate in the events? So, um, we're going to be releasing some episodes over the next week, couple weeks, and, uh, you'll be able to see it on our Instagram page. Uh, we'll have some links on there and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit more that I'm hoping to put out there and I'm really hoping that, uh, this might lead to some more opportunity to, 
um, continue paying musicians and continue to um, bring into people's homes. Uh, so there's, there's going to be plenty of updates. And uh, so our Instagram page, which is the Django NYC, is a great place to uh, get updates on that. Amazing. Well, Maxwell, thank you for joining us today and really incredible the efforts that you and Thirst are doing. Uh, for people who didn't get it the first time, can you provide the contact information and or how they can find you? Yeah, of course. So uh, the website is thirstgroup.org. And uh, if you are a business owner, please, please sign up and provide us with your business information and we'll support you. Um, if you are not a business owner, we still need help. We still need to support businesses. And if you to get involved, there's, there's an option that is that just, I think it says get involved on the page. You can just click that link. And um, if you'd like to talk to me directly, or if you'd like to start a charter or just find other creative ways of collaborating with me, uh, I can reach at M as in Maxwell, B as in Britain, at maxwellbritain.com. Incredible. Uh, we're going to play another song from the archives, and then we're back with the second half of Snappy Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and director of collections and archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on Tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what makes Hearst Ranch beef unique. I think it's notable that all of the beef produced off the ranches are basically within the food shed, you know, within a couple hundred miles of the ranch, which is really cool. Yeah, it is. And we're, and we're looking into doing other things. I mean, we've been working with Whole Foods now for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, but we've also continued to make a small selection of frozen items that people can buy on a year-round basis. And one of the other trends that I've seen pick up massive momentum in the past three to five years is, you know, going back towards people buying their monthly yeah, their monthly uh, beef needs or meat needs, protein needs, and having it shipped direct to their right. house. What I see has changed is instead of handpicking what you think you want to go in there, you trust the company that is providing it to you to give you the variety that you need for your complete right. diet needs. So you might you, you trust that they're going to be sourcing credible mm-hmm. beef, and you may not know as much as these guys do. You trust that they're going to give you the variety so you can expand your palate. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome back to Stacking Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, We have 88 Palms. Live in studio today. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Well, we've got two off mic and one on mic. So we do you want to introduce who's in the room? Um, so we have Kaito Sanchez and Joshua Ruha, um, two of my guys. Um, we all play together around town. We're missing uh, Jonathan Granoff and Morgan Wiley, who play bass and keys with us. Um, they're elsewhere in the world today. And Morgan, for old Snacky Tunes listeners, might remember when he was on as Midnight Magic, which is what we heard right before we came back yes. from break. Yes, uh, and, uh, Ka- like, and Kaito plays with Midnight Magic yeah. as well. Yeah, I think that was eight years ago, Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we did that here, don't we? Yeah, we did it here. Everybody, don't we? Yeah, we fit all six people in here, plus us, <laughs> plus friends. Uh, it was pretty crammed in. I think that was one of the most packed we'd ever done. It It was hot. It was great, though. I mean, I feel like that was all this and this music is also like all summer tropical, really amazing summer vibes. Um, Yes. Right before we started, you had mentioned that there's a number of rules for 88 Pubs. (laughs) Rule number three being keep a jazz mentality. What are some of the other rules and how have they developed and uh, um, affected the, the way the band creates and, and performs? The the number one rule is don't look Rhea in the eyes. Perfect. Sorry, um, I've broken it. <laughs> which everyone breaks all the time, but just just know that I'll, I'll, I'll come for you in some sort of way. Like eyes or eyes? Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look Rhea in the eyes. Kaito gets the the other view most of the time. As a drummer. Classic drummer view. Classic drummer view. Um, Let's see. Number number two is um, vibes. Just vibes. Just feel it. Just go with it. Um, We end up 
improvising a lot because we all have so many other different projects going on. There's not a lot of time for rehearsals and, and practicing. So um, it ends up being a lot of jazz, rule number three, jazz mentality. Um, keep it, you know, there, there are no wrong chords, just jazz chords. <laughs> Well, it's, it's more about uh, the, the, perf the performance, you know, like, I feel like jazz musicians are just so good on their craft that they don't rehearse. Yeah. And they know the tune, they just like, okay, be, be comfortable, be solid, be confident, but also be playful. It's really, I mean, it's like, uh, here's the structure, you know, the song, yeah, exactly. play, play within it, mm -hmm. uh, play around it. Listen to everybody, it's yeah, a conversation. Right, yeah. yeah, the conversation place, especially for people, I mean, you, you're all in bands. Uh, you're all from diverse backgrounds. You're all from different musical upbringings. But you know, when bands try to play the same note every time, especially when it's this type of music, it feels a little soulless. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the fun things about the the 88 Palm shows is nobody ever gets the same show twice. <laughs> it's well, yeah. like even if you want e it. Yeah, yeah. Even if we tried to put a structure on it and make it a thing, you know, inevitably <laughs> somebody's gonna kind of be in a moment. And I'm looking at Kaito like. Yeah, how do you how do you deal with that type of? I mean, you've only been playing live since 2017, so yeah. the live show is still relatively new. How do you communicate, uh, and how do you let someone just if they're living inside a moment? How do you let them live without getting uh, frustrated? Um, there's no there's no frustration. I mean, you know, we've we're all we've all been playing together in different respects for for long enough. But it's like we recognize when somebody is kind of feeling something and in a moment like I like to just let them let them have that moment sometimes it's me sometimes it's Kaito sometimes it's Josh sometimes it's uh Dominica from Underground System who joined us on flute the other day you know and I just let her rip and do her thing um you know until it felt like the right moment to go back into the to the track uh that that's amazing and so like the songs are structured I mean obviously the recorded is you set something down but how did you get to for the EP a structure that for a show that's ever evolving, and I'm sure practice is the same way, how did you go, okay, that's the version? Um, honestly, um, a lot of the EP, Morgan and I wrote really quickly together. Um, I kind of came into the studio one day, and he had a couple kind of like ideas floating around that he had started, and he was playing me a bunch of stuff, and, and I started kind of improvising and singing on top of it. He stuck a microphone in front of me, and you know, we very quickly had kind of rough ideas of what the songs were going to be. We did a little bit of fine tuning in terms of like the arrangements and structures, but um, the versions that are on the EP are not that different, um, and they're pretty non-traditional structurally. Yes, um, <laughs> which is kind of a byproduct of of. Rule number two, which is jazz vibes. mentality. No, that's rule number three. Vibes. Just vibes. vibes. Just, fe yeah. just feeling it. And, you know, like I, you know, I hadn't really written a lot of stuff like that with um, with anybody else previous to that. So both of us were just kind of going off of like, I don't know, does it feel right? Does it feel like it should end here? And not really operating within a traditional songwriting structure, um, which makes it really challenging and really interesting to do these songs live. <laughs> Can we hear something live? Yeah, let's let's play something live. What are you gonna play for us first? Um, so this first song is called Downtown. Um, this is another one. We have a little. This isn't um, out on you know Spotify and all of that just yet. Um, this is on our our SoundCloud. We have a little mixtape that we threw up. That's just a lot of kind of really um, 
fun, houseier, easy things that we just threw together that we'll be releasing at some point. But sometime, sometime, sometime. You know, one All thing, right. one thing at a time. Here. Well, here we go with eighty-eight pubs live on Snacky Tunes. I couldn't help but eavesdrop while you were doing soundtrack, and you said that Jessica Rabbit 
was a guiding light from your childhood to present day. Yeah. How does that work? How does that work? Um, I was just, I guess, really inspired by this powerful uh, female character who um, used her kind of talents and abilities in order to um, kind of transport people to another kind of fantasy realm, I think. Oh, wow. Oh, we have pizza now. This is incredible. Snacky tunes. Snacky tunes. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, and I, I just always... Um, obviously, she's very beautiful character, and um, I always really respected the fact, too, that she loved little Roger Rabbit for his talents and abilities and not necessarily based on looks like a, you know, like a woman of her stature could. So, um, yeah, and I just, I just love that. I love the, the sexiness of it and the embracing that sexuality and like kind of, and not being, not shying away from it was, uh, I think an important part of that. I think the other interesting thing too, is that this has, your sound has such like a classic, New York disco, but most of you from the West Coast. So uh, how did that sound become the guiding light as well for 88 Palms? And how does that kind of reflect, you know, the music that you make as a band? So um, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, originally. Um, but my father's from Mexico, so I grew up spending um, a lot of time in Mexico as well like beaches and palm trees and kind of tropical vibes. Um, Morgan is from um, Las Vegas, originally spent some time in L.A. And we both just have this kind of like desert affinity for this sort of like tropical sound. But then, you know, both of us ended up transplanting to, to New York City and um, and Caito as well, who plays a lot of the percussion and guitar and bass too on on and yeah on the whole record um, from Panama and been in New York as well and so there's a definite wide range of influences. My my father was a, a disco DJ in the '70s in Mexico. Um, really? Do you know the name of the clubs? Um, have you ever heard of a little club called Senor Frogs? <laughs> Oh, well, of course. It's, so, like, it's like Pizzeria Uno, and like the original is amazing, and every other one is terrible. Yes. But so, like the original is like, oh, well, if they're all like this, this makes sense. Yeah. Let me play in the arena. Yeah, yeah. So the original one was in Mazatlan, Sinaloa, in the 70s, and his best friend from high school started it. So they were all running Wait, he it. He knew Senior Frog. The original. The, yeah, El Senor Frog. El Senor Frog. Yeah. Oh, is that a dude? <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, but if his friend started it, yeah, yeah. It's apple. So, apple. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so that was how... Um, so he started, you know, he was bartending and barbacking and a waiter and, and DJing. And, um, and at that time, a lot of the music cats from L.A. would come down to get away from the, the scene there. It was a little bit, it sounds like kind of what Tulum is to New York right now, sure. you know, where everyone goes to get away. So my dad was, you know, running hotels and nightclubs in that scene and doing like volleyball on the beach with Bob Dylan and dancing with John Travolta in the clubs and 
And um, he, you know, raised me with a, a very, like, prominent disco kind of mentality that I didn't embrace at first when I was in my heavy rock and roll phase. Sure. And then as I got older and got more into, you know, like dance music and house and its origins and disco, I, I began to understand that um, Papa Alberto really actually knew what he was talking about. <laughs> we eventually get there. Is there one record that sums up your child? Like if you heard it, it would take you right back to your dad playing records for you? Um, anything Beatles or Led Zeppelin. Um, At, but not a disco wait, wait, record? But not a disco. The <laughs> disco didn't come until later. I think the... I think one of the things that that really cemented that for me, he he gave me he gave me my first Depeche Mode CD when I was like 15, and that really changed a lot of things for me. And then it was like I remember around the time when um, when Daft Punk released their last album, Random Access Memories, and asking my dad about Nile Rodgers and him sort of giving me like a verbal backhand and being like, "Of course I know about <laughs> Nile Rodgers and Marauder and Donna Summer and all." And he was, he was like... Uh, Speaking of Marota, he just announced his first live tour ever at, like, Ooh. 79. Whoa. Yeah. He's wow. a beast, man. He, yeah. Um, no, uh, oh. Giorgio Marota, like, four dates in the UK. A lot of, a lot of respect yeah. for, for Marota. Yeah, Marotta. sure. Take your time. Take your time. <laughs> yeah. Take your time. Can we hear another song? Uh, yeah, let's do another one. This is... Um, <laughs> We just we just decided to do this one on the fly. Um, switch it up, do something a little a little faster. Um, this is called "Show Me What You Taste Like," and this is not out yet either. We're just doing a bunch of exclusives for you guys today. Perfect. We love a snacky tooth exclusive. <laughs> we used to have an air horn that w- when anyone would say that, but that air horn got retired. So. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, thank you. Yes, the 88 Palms version of an air horn. Perfect. Um... Hey 
treat you right. Oh, 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 oh. Shut me down and we take to the top. Oh, 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 oh. Shut me down. I don't want it to stop. Oh, oh, oh. Shut me down and we take it to the top. Oh, oh, oh. Shut me down. I don't want it to. mentioned that you're always in a phase of recording uh how does that work especially with all these demos and everything is it just one at a time is it who's ever around i mean it, it, it's a eclectic group of musicians to pin down in a room so how does that work yeah so um usually how it ends up working is um i mean it's really honestly it's really hard anytime um we meet up in the studio to not write something new and it's and it's also really cool um the the space we work out of in in Greenpoint, um, there's always all kinds of amazing people sort of floating around the space and you never really know who's going to like drop in or be around. And so a lot of the what's on the EP, you know, Morgan and I kind of wrote the basis for it together. And then, you know, as he's in the studio and people are coming by, he can kind of like grab people and like, hey, can you lay down a bass part on this real quick? Hey, you, you want to do some drums on this? Hey, you want to do some guitar? And then we kind of come back together and like, retool the whole thing and um and or sometimes we'll be in there working on something and someone shows up and they have something to contribute so it's just like yeah it's it's that it's that kind of jazz mentality again where it's just like free form um recording rule number one is yeah well we've all um, broken that i'm sorry i keep breaking rule number one i keep looking at you (laughs) i apologize (laughs) i'll just stare at you ask questions over there yes you want to talk to Ria. Yeah. You're going to have to get through Kaito. Go look there and then she'll wink. <laughs> and then it'll come back to me. Uh, so you have a DJ gig coming up on the 17th. What what can one expect in a, a DJ set? Um, yes. Yeah, so um, that one's just, I'm going to be DJing. Um, Josh is going to be there with me. We're going to play a little set um, at Gospel in Soho on Wednesday um, my good friend Sean Glass does a little party there called Reunion where he kind of brings together all of his contacts from all these various different industries and um, just makes a really cool party about it. So we're going to do a couple of live songs and then um, I'll DJ a little bit with him and some other people. Um, the DJ sets are, you know, it's um, it's a lot of stuff that, um, that I'm inspired by um, that I'm really into right now. Um, a lot of house and, and disco edits, obviously. Of course. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and then you're playing the McKittrick Hotel Halloween party, which I was at last year, and it is phenomenal. Yeah. It is one of the best times ever. I think I've actually been a few years in a row. Uh, what Will you be in costume? What will the attire <laughs> be? It's three different nights. Is that three different costumes? Like, how does it work? What is, what's the plan? Yeah, so I'm in the process of figuring that out right now, actually. Um, you know, stylists and designers, get at me. We've got a lot of dressing to do. Um. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in between Mexican Elvis, mm. Miles Davis, mm. uh, Teddy Gross. Teddy, uh, Pen- Pe- Teddy Pentagram? 
I mean, the, I mean, Teddy, Teddy Gross, <laughs> Teddy Pentagram is that's a good one. Actually. That's like a very good one for Halloween. That's well, very that was, good. That's how that's how Charles Bradley used to call him. Oh, really? Teddy Pentagram. Teddy Pentagram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So three different nights. Um, it's I guess the theme is like a, a kind of like haunted dystopian thing. So I'm feeling personally, I'm feeling a lot of like Blade Runner type naturally vibes, Perfect. which is. You know, very Leather. close to my heart as well. Um, so I don't know, it's loose. But then we're playing in the Mandalay bar, which is like this very jazzy, like dark, sexy kind of room. So um, honestly, at this point, I have no idea. I'm just gonna, I this is how I do Halloween every year. I just, I have so many fun outfits in my closet. I just kind of pull something I, I, out and like I get the most amazing ideas like around June. Around June, right, like yeah. May, yeah. like this is a great idea. So, and I always, so I always think set. about like I should write them, and I forget Forgotten. them. And it's like when it's close to Halloween, I just oh, I forgot this amazing idea I had, and I got hung on that. I like you can you be know? Teddy like Pentagram. A, I'll be Jessica Rabbit. Yes, Josh. To be determined. All right, well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Uh, where can people find your music? Get your tour dates. Hear your SoundCloud mixes. Um, so we're on all digital platforms, iTunes, um, Spotify, Google Music, Amazon, all these things. Um, we're honestly, most of the tour dates and everything is through, um, Instagram at 88 palms. Um, not take it, not, <laughs> not take it. So important these days. So important. So, um, yeah, so that's, I think, the best way to kind of keep up with us because um, that's the only thing that I have time to update most of the time. So <laughs> Perfect. Well, we want to thank Bruce Bromberg for talking with Darren early in the episode. Uh, thank you to Andrew Poso for putting us all together. Thanks, Andrew. Jeet, our new Sunday engineer. Welcome to the family. Pleasure thank having you, you. Thank you to Kong as well. Uh, thanks for listening to Snacky Tunes. We'll be back with an all-new episode next week. What are you going to take us out with? Um, this is Hollywood Sun. We're going to take you to the West Coast for a little bit of dreamy landscapes. Perfect. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.
baby loves me and we're at the chateau my baby loves me and he's ready to go pull up the car the boulevard your name and stars at the hollywood is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.